1: Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, I'm one of the hosts of the New Books in Folklore channel, and today my guest is Lee Biggood. Lee Biggood is an associate professor of bluegrass, old-time, and country music studies in the Department of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University. He's also a performing bluegrass musician, and today he'll be talking about his new book, which is called Czech Bluegrass, Notes from the Heart of Europe. Lee Biggood, welcome to
0: New Books in Folklore. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here.
1: And appropriately enough, you're actually speaking from the heart of Europe right now because you're in the Czech Republic. Where about are you?
0: Well, we, we're in Prague uh, and in the heart of the heart and the biggest city in the country. And I'm here, uh, I have a Fulbright Scholar uh, grant. And so I'm here teaching and conducting more research for the year.
1: I wonder if you could start by telling us all a little bit about yourself, including perhaps your how you came to be a, a folklorist or folk music scholar story.
0: Sure. I, it's hilarious to me uh, to realize that the first brush with folklore that I had was when I was about 10 years old. And I went with some grownups, some adults that I played music with at the time I was playing fiddle. And they took me to the the state folklore festival, or something like that, in White Springs, in Florida, and I entered the fiddle contest, and I think I won second or third place in the junior division. And I, I was awarded maybe ten dollars and eighty-six cents, or some fractional of the of the total pot. But I realized recently that that was recorded, and it's and it's recorded on the folklore archives of Florida, and I'm listed there as a tradition bearer. So I was actually first a tradition there, but that, that that I was involved in this whole folklore thing, but it's, that was part of my, uh, progression in, in learning about the communities and the musics that, that make up what I study now. And I eventually came to the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And there I was playing classical music and also kept up doing old time and bluegrass music. And eventually through uh, working with professors like Robert Cantwell and Sarah Weiss and other folks, I just learned more about ethnomusicology and about folklore and American studies and realized that's that's really a way that I could make sense of all these different musical communities and milieus that I had been in so far growing up.
1: Tell us how you got interested in bluegrass in the Czech Republic and also how this all kind of fits into your vision of what folklore is, because as we discuss quite regularly here on this podcast, folklore is much broader in some ways than people think of it when they haven't had a background in folklore studies.
0: Absolutely. Well, I was influenced from classes I took in my undergraduate studies um, and the folklore program at UNC Chapel Hill was, was influential. Um, Especially in, in in terms of uh, southern studies, regional studies, and so that that really informs my work now. Working within the field of Appalachian studies, and just the the humane approach to studies of culture that I um, that, that I was instilled in me by those those folks has been really powerful. Uh, and then later, the since these days I, I teach a. I developed a, a three-course history sequence of bluegrass history 1, bluegrass history 2, and survey of contemporary bluegrass for our students at ETSU in this bluegrass old-time and country music studies program. And it's a rare to have a whole three-course sequence that all the majors have to take. And the main text that we use is uh, Bluegrass A History by Neil Rosenberg. And through using hit that book and other works that he's produced, uh, the transforming tradition volume and some other ones I, I just I think he's really my main influence from the field of folklore and it's been a real honor to get to know him a little bit more and uh just leading up now to this memoir that he just released this book from the University of Illinois Press that talks about a lot of his early uh important experiences as a folklorist student and as a bluegrass musician. And so it's been, it's been really interesting. T- uh, I just finished reading that a little while ago. Uh, it, it's, it gives me a lot of insight into how someone can be involved in the musical community as an insider or as a specialist perhaps, and as a, an outsider, as a, as a study, as a studier, as a researcher in a part of the academy. So this participant observer divide, uh, he's provided a model that is really appealing to me and has been really influential.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about what that model is?
0: Oh, well,
1: <laughs> in a nutshell.
0: Okay. Well, I guess for me the the term that has been really appealing to me lately is public folklore or public scholarship, I guess. Uh, I'm working more within the academic context, not within a like a state folklorist or office like that, but I um uh, I guess I see one of my jobs is uh is to support people in the communities that i that i study and learn about um and to provide interpretation for them and you know when i'm here in the czech republic i i do things like tr- help people translate songs or help them re- uh correct and edit text for their web pages and things like that so i i do those things that i've I've heard from uh like John Loman I remember he was a, involved with folklore type things in Virginia was saying part of his his role as a folklorist is to help people uh help showcase people that so that their folklore and the, what they do can be seen and understood by other folks and so that's that's one uh role that I think that I have um and then producing uh scholarship but also other kinds of media has been something I've been working on lately and especially with this film banjo Romantica which uh, has been has been coming out since uh, 2013 in various forms that was a really exciting uh, result of my research and and has turned into a big mode of outreach and uh, that that was a really uh, it was it really surprised me how much more the film engaged people and raised questions and provided uh, avenues for conversation uh, than other things i had done, like produce academic articles. Big surprise, right? More people are interested in it in a film than, than an academic article.
1: Who would have thought? Yeah.
0: So the, I think uh, those kind of things that that work with community people, and then in my production of media and, and in my scholarship, in that was I'm I'm thinking of of how to how to reach people on a, on a more community level, in addition to community participating in the academic discourse.
1: So you cover some of this in your introduction to Czech bluegrass, and you also talk about how you first came to become acquainted with Czech bluegrass and the Czech Republic. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure,
0: sure. I, it started with an email group. I first uh, heard of Czech bluegrass style mandolin makers when I was a part of the commando email list so you can tell this was in the ancient past uh several generations <laughs> past in the digital world of social media and it was a email list so through the maybe 1998 1999 i was hearing people talk uh, you know mandolin nerds getting together to talk shop and they were mentioning these uh makers of american style bluegrass style mandolins over there so i i just you know that it's that first reaction that I think is so common that I see other people have, wow, uh, it's sort of like a uh, huh reaction. There's something there that doesn't compute. And th- that was the reaction I had. And But I, felt, I thought it was very interesting. And coming out of, the, I was in the midst of these uh, classes and, and other things that were happening, my developing bi-musicality, and I was thinking about where music make, where music belongs, who does it belong to, and that just that mention of bluegrass happening in the Czech Republic seemed like uh, an interesting paradox, perhaps. And, and that's really what caught my attention. It just really continued on from there and snowballed.
1: I should ask you, just before you go on, can you clarify for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with the term by musicality, what you are referring to with that word? Sure,
0: sure. And this is... Uh, concept developed my mantle hood and other folks more on the on the ethnomusicology side but the idea that there it's a perhaps a method by which a researcher would consider or frame a cross-cultural musical experience to acknowledge that you have uh, an existing musicality and that you then develop a a, another musicality and the the metaphor there the images of language, perhaps you have a, a home language and then you have another language you could be bilingual so it's it's a comparable turn to that by by musicality and there's a lot of issues with that um but uh, the, the the basic concept is is, the, is that
1: so in terms of your bi musicality are you referring to you're training in the classical tradition and then in bluegrass or you're training in bluegrass and then in czech bluegrass
0: or- <laughs> that's interesting well for me the formative shift was being all along i came up well since i was four i did classical stuff suzuki violin and so on and then i uh started doing bluegrass type things and then also early music within the academic context and really it was within that context that i i first started to think huh like there are different contexts in which this kind of music is is happening you know that that uh, we we play bach but it's there's a totally different culture around playing of of these of these pieces when it's in the early music environment and that that was that was the change like i realized that these different contexts called for different ways of doing and being
1: you describe your background somewhat in the introduction and also talk about how your visits to the Czech Republic started with I think an undergraduate study abroad year and then you've been going back a lot it seems to me ever since how often would you say you go back
0: <laughs> well as often as I could now it's a little harder than it used to be but I I definitely spend a lot of time and I've am th- this is my second year of presence here that is supported by a Fulbright grant so I'm really grateful to that Fulbright program and uh, I had a FLAS grant to do language study, foreign language and area studies grant to do a language study here in one summer and I, I've come over funded by playing music so uh, performing with uh, Czech bands in various places so just however it worked out it's, I think I my approach has been kind of opportunistic in that way. I, I applied for grants and did all the things that you do if you're doing field research, but I also just sought out whatever opportunities there were. Uh it's kind of ad hoc in that way, but that's that's what I had to work with.
1: So the first chapter is called Place, Meaning, Community, and In Betweenness. And this in betweenness you, you describe as relating to how the Czech musicians Situate themselves in relation to america so this is really a scene setting chapter in terms of the uh, the musicians that you're interacting with can you tell us about what you're talking about in this chapter sure
0: and uh, i it's it's not a concept that came from the people i was working with it's something i came up with in understanding it myself and i so i i offer it as as an idea for for us as we discuss it and 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 think about what these folks are doing so I, in that sense it's kind of an artificial construct on my part but i think it works to to talk about things and i i still am just tickled by the opening anecdote that kicks it off uh which hinges on a joke and so i'm i'll let you guys read it but it's uh it it's a joke that a musician makes on stage just in a
1: oh no you have
0: oh, to tell okay us what the all joke. right you have to
1: tell our listeners okay. what the joke all right. Joke so is. there's a
0: a group named, uh called relief who are leading a workshop on how to how to uh conduct yourself on stage as a band and they uh they're talking about how to start off a song and uh one of the members says oh usually you should you should uh start with the melody. If you play an introductory instrumental part, it should clearly state the melody so that the audience knows what song is coming up. And, and so everyone is, is clear on that. And another member's quipped about, uh, uh, that if you're playing, uh, a song, uh, that's by a, a Czech author or a Czech composer and musician, it, you can know that it's that and not, uh, sweetheart you done me wrong or some other song and uh then the another member chimed in and i'm I'm realizing this is not so fun it's not as funny when i say it (laughs) anyhow that he he chimes in (laughs) and uh says uh, that it was uh bill monroe who uh who who would have been involved in that anyhow so he he jokes that um Petr Kuss, this Czech musician who, who wrote the song, and he puts Petr Kuss on the same level as uh, Bill Monroe, who is an originating historical figure, who, who has a lot of importance, symbolic and concrete for people who are interested in bluegrass. And so he puts Petr Kuss and Bill Monroe on the same level in a way through this joke. And that just had, got me thinking way back when, I, when this happened and I was transcribing all this that uh, it just opens up this space where where, where else in the world could this Czech musician be considered on the same plane as this, this, uh, you know, significant American musical figure who's has this foundational role in bluegrass. And uh, so I, I think it's, it kicked off for me this idea that Czechs create this playful uh, in between status that is, very uh, much this as if. It's a playful imagination of what if Petr was as well known and influential uh, and had done these foundational things like Bill Monroe. And so that, that for me, that, that in-between space is uh, very, can be very serious, but it's also very playful. And I think that's part of its power.
1: Can you describe a little bit the scenes with which you're interacting with in the Czech Republic? How does the bluegrass scene manifest in terms of what you've come across? Because you're quite clear that you're not making general statements about all Czech bluegrass musicians. You're talking about the people with whom you've worked and have fieldwork relationships or friendships and musical relationships and so on and so forth.
0: Absolutely. Well, the early on, I made a decision that was pragmatic for a number of reasons i decided i was going to focus most on bluegrass music makers here who were really trying to perform something that was very american uh, and there's a lot of different things that, that can happen that can happen in costume that can happen in, in use of text or negotiation of language in different ways or in musical style in in different ways so I that was just a pragmatic choice in some ways because those were the people who were interested in interacting with me. And so it, was, it made it easy because it was the people who, who it was easy for me to, to reach out to and to, to interact with and to whom I had access. And then for, on the sort of theoretical side or methodological side, that's really what became interesting for me as my fieldwork continued it was what was the importance of this americanness for uh czechs and how did they create what i call america with a k which maybe not is the best term but that's that's the czech word for when they when they talk about america it's it's using the czech word for the country so i, I use that sometimes to point towards this in between construction of czechness and americanness this mixture of the two and uh so i think there the there were people for whom that america is much more important and who i guess i have tended to work with people who are more able to express that musically uh there are a lot of people here who wear cowboy boots and who have an american flag at their country cottage out out on a river somewhere there are a lot of modes of americanness that are expressed but i focused on those who had a more musical fluency uh, in that mode of Americanness, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. One of the things I picked out from this chapter was this word vono or ono. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or, I'm not sure how you say it. How do you the, say vono, it?
0: Vono or ono, yes.
1: Can you tell the listeners a little bit about this word?
0: Sure, sure. Well, it and it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's It means that, right? And sometimes it's those words that are so common that it becomes so loaded with meaning and also so uh difficult to know what that meaning is, right? It's ambiguous. So the I just heard so often because it's a common word. People saying yo toya that's it. Like if they heard something on the radio or recording, saying like that's what I like and that's the the it that really motivated them, that got them excited. Uh if they were able to play something just like uh earl scruggs did you know they would say yes I, that was it i was able to reproduce the it that lights up all my pleasure sensors and my happiness uh, centers so uh this idea of the it that that lights people up that inspires them and motivates them the goal towards which they are moving and that can it shifts it moves it's a definitely a moving target and but it's i think it's an important concept uh what and it, it, it that often intersects with or is the Americanness that, uh, that I focus on.
1: So in the second chapter, which is titled Czech Bluegrass Histories and Backgrounds, you cover a little bit about how this interest in America came about, and you describe the cultural landscape in the Czech Republic and how it came to be a fertile ground for bluegrass. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure, and the one sentence answer is it was the U.S. military, which it's a surprising thing to realize, but it's a common story. American popular music spread around the globe during in the mid twentieth century, uh, thanks to U.S. Army U.S. military presence, for instance, in Japan and uh, other places. So, radio, uh, armed forces network radio in Munich, was uh, people in the in the Czechoslovakian territory at the time were able to to hear that in the 50s and during that period of time uh this bill monroe uh, ralph stanley or the stanley brothers people like that who were playing bluegrass type music were uh were played on country music or hillbilly music shows the stick buddy jamboree was one such that that played in the 50s from munich and it started with a banjo uh as the as the theme song and then and then they played all sorts of country music at that time, but that included the more acoustic sounds of bluegrass type music. So that was the exposure to it. But of course, I like I like that you, that you put the organic metaphor in there. The soil had been prepared before these seeds happened. And the very important concept there is tramping, which had been happening. It was a phenomenon that grew up earlier in the 20th century during the Haps, the late Habsburg and the early First Republic, the interwar uh, democracy that uh, emerged after World War One, and in the twenties and thirties, it was a huge phenomenon. It was a huge uh, part of of popular culture and youth culture in Czechoslovakia, and it involved people leaving the city, going out into the country. And escaping this growing industrialization and so on, it was linked to the Vondervogel movement and the scouting movement that was also uh, big during that time. But it was more uh, unorganized. It was more it had these various Czech distinctivenesses to it. And one of the big things that grew out of the tramping uh, during the 20s and 30s was a huge repertory of songs and the practice of singing uh, out by campfires at with uh, banjos, mandolins, uh, and guitars, and so on, uh, fiddles, various uh, stringed instruments modeled uh, on various forms of popular music at the time. They often were foxtrots, uh, mashishes, other sorts of popular dance forms at the time. And uh, a drawing, there's some people who have studied that, the tramping music, that say that those tramp, the uh, song practices were drawn. They they modeled their vocality on barbershop quartet records that uh came over from the international record industry at the time. So that tramping music, you can see it, it it's it laid it laid a framework, it established a framework that really allowed Czechs to then just convert a few things and and they could be playing bluegrass. And I'll just one one other really important thing goes back even further into the nineteenth century is the uh, Czech interest in the Wild West, and you can't under as uh, under uh, state the importance of the contribution of a gentleman named Karl May, who wrote uh, Western novels in German. He lived in Saxony, right across just north of of Bohemia, and he wrote these fantastic uh, travel novels and also Western novels about Winnetou and Old Shatterhand, these just stereotypical Westerns, even though he hadn't been there to see it. So anyhow, he wrote these novels. They were translated into pretty much every European language and they were really common. And so people had from him and other similar authors, this idea of the Wild West. And that was really linked with tramping. And that all was uh, was already in Czech's minds when they heard bluegrass. And for them, it was just bluegrass was pulled into that existing tramp culture and it just gained a a new format, a musical format with bluegrass.
1: I had not heard of the tramping movement until I read your book. And I was curious, the tramp word, does it come from the English word tramp or is it a Czech word?
0: Well, there's a debate about that. As with such central cultural concepts, there are a lot of different origin stories for the term but all of them are Americans. Some people base it in this more general idea of the hobo as a tramp, someone who by choice or through circumstances forced to take to the road and lead this more shiftless uh, itinerant existence. And some people uh, connect it to a more literary source, to Jack Kerouac's The Road, Um, but it's definitely American.
1: So it sounds kind of similar to the Back to the Land movement that – we know of in america has some parallels there right
0: absolutely absolutely and one important thing is that the the trip the the journey that the tramp makes goes out and they come back and usually that they leave friday after work and they come back after a weekend of roasting sausages over fires in the woods and and strumming guitars around the campfire Uh, the movement there is that cycle it's it's not like a one-way thing it's not this longer journey it, it it's really a shorter trip on the train and then you come back so it's much more domestic it's much more inc- contained but it's uh it's it definitely uh you know it, it has that idea of, of the movement and uh and also the the idea that it, it enriches you like it, it gives you like life it, uh like it, it improves the quality of your life so it it's, But it's not as permanent, maybe, as living in the country permanently.
1: And I was surprised to read in this chapter that there was a feeling that there was a lack of real local folklore in this area at, at the same time as all this was
0: happening. Right. And it's connected to the difficult history of of this part of the world, just this crossroads that's always fought over all through history, various ways. Uh, there are these natural boundaries, but the Habsburgs took over in the 1600s after the Thirty Years' War. German was the official language. And then you have the, the national revival in the 20th century. So Czech language is reintroduced and restructured. But then you have this uh, difficult history of the Sudetenland and the expulsion of Germans, the expulsion of Czechs, the importation of Roma from Slovakia all the way through the 20th century. There's just in this period of, Bo- in this area of Bohemia, there's just a lot of turmoil. And just, you know, 300 years of occupation and Germanization. Really led to a devaluing of Czech folklore, and it just a, a lot of people really seek out the rare examples of folklore there. And it's very different in Moravia. I need to say Moravia, the the part to the east and the south, more towards Slovakia, is it, it has a much more documented and more celebrated practices of folklore and distinctive village and regional uh, outfits and dances and songs and all sorts of of practices. But, I have the feeling that I've got from from various scholars and other observers that it's just less around Prague because of the cosmopolitan nature of it and its sort of uh, its role as a pawn in these larger political and military uh processes.
1: You also mentioned that something that was kind of influential was uh Pete Seeger's tour in nineteen
0: sixty four Yes, that was a really important moment for people to to realize that they have been playing banjos in tramping music and other forms, maybe Dixieland, jazz, other uh, forms of music. And they realized, oh, this music that we've been hearing on American military radio has a banjo. We got that much, but we didn't realize that it had five strings. And I've, I've, in interviews with people, they've told me this, and they had this realization, a gentleman named Marco Czermak, uh, who's who's in the book in various parts, he he just gets all excited when he recalls the moment when he saw the photograph, and he said, "Oh, it has five strings!" So it was a, a really important moment for them in terms of technical knowledge about the music and what made it up f- for this particular instrument. Uh, so that it was very exciting for people who were interested in the folk movement specifically, and his presence there was just really exciting in on its own. But for people who were already listening to bluegrass by this time, uh, the the more knowledge about the banjo was a, a huge revelation.
1: So up until that point, had they been trying to work out how to emulate the music
0: with a four-string banjo? Right. And I, I love it. Marco Chermach just sort of sheepishly recounts recounts to me all the things he tried to do. He uh, tried to do with a one flat pick or a, a, a plectrum to play the these syncopated roll patterns that uh, Scruggs-style banjoists were using. You know, da da da, 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 da 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 trying to do that with, with one pick. Or he said at one point he took a little piece of wood and he put he glued two picks on it to just get more pick strokes. I mean, he was he just didn't know what, what was going on. So That's it was wonderful. A, and it, one one great thing after uh, after secret as well, there was a visit uh, by another Manj- American banjoist who actually sat down with Marco Chedmark. And uh, showed him actually how to play, and so there was a series of the, the the presence of actual Americans was really important for bringing people there here the knowledge of how to how to make this music.
1: So in the third chapter, it's titled "Making Bluegrass at Home, Abroad, and In Between," and it also includes very much your own involvement in this at home, abroad, and in betweenness.
0: It's kind of a potpourri; it's a hodgepodge of different things that I think tie into this theme of of the concrete maybe this following up on this idea of the, the concrete people and the movement of people and, and things that uh, make this all happen and for so i i focus some on my work with a particular czech band named rolls boys and how just what it was like to travel with them to other countries to to play at a bluegrass festival in hungary to play a country festival in norway to go to uh, Denmark, to the Netherlands, to to play and and to to observe what it's like to be with them, and also to see what it was like to compare them to French bluegrass bands and Dutch and uh, um, Italian bluegrass bands, and and to to meet people who play old time tunes in Denmark and Sweden. So uh, it was just a really important experience for me in terms of context. And it also led to some insights into the specific uh, distinctiveness of the Czech players and the Czech community within the European scene. Of course, I, I bring that back to the idea of in-betweenness and saying that the Czech bluegrassers, uh, take, they are given the status of an in-between, uh, in-between uh, European and American because so often these musicians are so accomplished and uh polished and and so fluent in the bluegrass styles that they are hired elsewhere in Europe because you can more cheaply hire a Czech band than you can an American band so they're like a stand-in that does a really good job uh but it's it it comes at a cheaper price and maybe there's a cachet that they are European so there's some pride that even in Europe we have folks who can do this music well
1: and so how would the Czech musicians, say, compare to the French bluegrass musicians or the Italian bluegrass musicians? I realize that's a very general question, but what did you observe when you saw them playing alongside one another at, at similar events? Yeah,
0: well, I, I, I'm not going to compare specifically. I'll say in general, the first of all, there are more Czech bands. So they're, they're, uh, for a long time, there's been different, there's different festivals called the European World of, of Bluegrass and out of a field of 20 odd bands maybe half sometimes a little less sometimes more of those bands would be czech or slovak so just in terms of numbers at these kind of events the czechs and slovaks were there and it's not because it's easy for them to get there or or cheap it's often more difficult for them for them to get there but they they make the effort to go there and then they're all really high quality bands so the, that that's one measure that i that i saw um and one other thing that i've realized is there there are good bluegrass bands all all over the Europe, all over europe all over the world uh, but what i realized distinguished as i talked to some people who come from dif- these different scenes, what is different is that there are a few really good bands in norway and in france and the netherlands but there is not this ground-level, grassroots interest in the music that, that it that is the reality here in the Czech Republic. That if you walk into a pub in Prague, there is some likelihood that there's going to be a group with a banjo and a guitar and a mandolin playing some bluegrass-influenced songs in a corner. It's just a normal part of life here. So it has a different position within the culture than in these other places. And that just makes the community a little different.
1: And what is it like for you being an American musician within this media You write about this, and I'm curious to hear you speak about it.
0: Right, and it's this typical situation that I think a lot of folklorists find themselves in. I was reading uh, an article by uh, Neil Rosenberg that I assigned to my class uh, here in the Czech Republic the other day, and it it talks about this process of, of starting as a tourist, as an outsider, and then being involved with specialists and tradition bearers and then eventually becoming a specialist yourself, crossing over. And so I've been an outsider as a, as a, as a foreigner and as an observer, but, but the Czechs really have included the, the Czech people that I, that I've come to know very quickly just brought me in. They pulled me into their circles and they said, tell us all about bluegrass. You know, we, we are really interested. You are an American, you are a primary source. So they were very eager to include me and to, to talk to me and, help me to speak Czech so we could communicate. And so that, that uh, initial stage is often, it, it really has continued all the way through. People are very welcoming and they're very eager to learn from me. So it, that, this is one thing methodologically, which was difficult for me, often in this biomusicality mo- uh, model, uh, the the field researcher goes and apprentices themselves to a master musician, a master practitioner somewhere. But, it was kind of tricky because coming here, many Czech people thought of me as having this more privileged—not not, not a guru, but but someone who had maybe uh, more primary source uh, uh, experience with the bluegrass that that we were you know that we we're all involved in. So that was it was a tricky a tricky thing, and eventually, I had to. Um, find a way to deal with that and, and, and write about that and, and use it as a, as a positive aspect of our interactions and, and not have it be a problem. So I've, I've tried to do that in various ways.
1: Can you give an example of one of the ways in which you've tried to do that
0: or have done that? Sure. Well, one thing that I would do to, um, I would say to a person, could I interview you? Um, and then in, in return and to reciprocate, I can give you a lesson or we could do, do work on some English pronunciation or, um, I can, uh, you know, help you, help you with something that, that something I have can help you with because I'm an American or, uh, so, th- and sometimes it's less concrete. People are just happy to hang out with me and spend time with me for whatever reason, you know, for their reasons. And so they're very happy to talk with me and to give their time for interviews and, and, and things like that to include me in, in, in things that happen.
1: And I noticed they ask you questions like, does everyone in America eat hamburgers <laughs> every meal? And do they all play
0: bluegrass? Right, right. <laughs> there's, there's this great song that, that we included in the film, and I talk about some in the book. It's, it's, called, it's, it's all about bluegrass and Tennessee. In one verse, it says, everyone in uh, every farmer and cowboy in the state of Tennessee loves this music, and that's why all of them know how to play it well. Right? It's, it's, it's this idealistic version, version of, of America. And again, I think it's tongue in cheek. They they play at thinking that everyone in America plays bluegrass, but you know the, when they ask me that, it's it's kind of they know that the answer is not really everybody.
1: You also talk about one of the ways in which the Czech musical community members are able to travel to America is through making
0: instruments. Absolutely, and that's one of the major influences that Czechs have on the global bluegrass scene, especially on the United States. And I focus more on banjos because that's one of the more distinctive uh, objects within the bluegrass object world, the physical world of bluegrass. And I also, sure. uh, I was able to meet several people who were really uh, prominent within the banjo building scene here. And so the you know, even there, there's an iconic uh, manufacturer of banjos and other instruments in the United States, Gibson, the Gibson Company which has been producing instruments for roughly a century at this point and has been really influential in American and global music from mandolins to guitars and jazz guitars and electric guitars, everything. And so they produced some of uh, what are considered the most uh, prized banjos, especially for bluegrass and other genres uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And I was just so tickled to learn that Gibson company in, I think, the early 2000s was buying some of their metal parts from Czech uh, parts manufacturers. And, of course, there's a long story of how this came to be. Uh, Various Czechs were able to go to the United States and and make connections. Uh, And, of course, before that, they had uh, little access to the West, especially before 1989, And they had to make all these specialized metal parts that are so essential for a banjo. They had to cast them or forge them uh, or tool them or however the metal processes are. They had to manufacture them and stamp them because there wasn't any other way that they could get them. So they had their own homemade parts. And then eventually they got to such a high level that they were sought after by uh, by the American market. And they still are. the Gibson Company is not really making that many acoustic instruments anymore, especially not banjos. Hopefully that'll change soon. But uh, the, there are other Mark um, retailers that sell these check parts, and they're very highly regarded.
1: I love reading about this because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I have read along the way that one of the reasons there are some of these instruments over in America, like mandolins, for example, is because when immigrants arrive from Eastern Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they either brought the instruments with them or they got them by catalogue from back home. And so it seems like there's a little parallel going on. Or is that not correct?
0: Oh, I'd like a citation on that. I don't know if I said that.
1: No, 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 you you didn't say it. I have read it elsewhere, sorry.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I'm very curious about that. I don't know. The the connections between uh, people who immigrated with the home country, we're still we're very strong. I definitely know that. And there was a lot of journalism and other things that connected. I didn't know about catalog ordering that would have gone back and forth.
1: That may be a little fabrication
0: of my own. There's there's a bluegrass musician I know who is working here on a project that is fascinating. It looks at um, uh, g- instrument manufacturing here within Bohemia, and how instruments that were manufactured on a mass scale here were exported all over the world. He, he's focusing mainly on jazz guitars, archtop guitars, but there are a lot of other instruments as well, especially fiddles, also uh, mandolins and guitars.
1: Speaking of the fiddle, that's what you're talking about in chapter four, learning and playing Americanness on the fiddle. And you start by saying that the level of fiddle playing in general is not quite at the level of the banjo playing amongst the
0: musicians in the Czech Republic. That's an impression that I have. And it's also a, an impression and maybe a complaint that I sometimes hear from, from Czechs here. Yes. So this is something for me to talk about musical style and in the process of learning, it was much easier for me to discuss uh, fiddles and fiddling because that's my main instrument. So I, I sought out uh, fiddlers and spent time with them and was able to interview them and observe them and just recorded and, and provided some interpretation for how they spoke about the the difficulties of learning and and the pleasures of it and one of the things that that I came to as I was writing all this up is that if you're talking about bluegrass fiddle style if you're coming to this as a late 20th or early 21st century Czech fiddle player there's so many choices that you have Uh, if you're if you're, uh, if you're just kind of entering the fray and you're just figuring out if I want to play bluegrass fiddle there's so many choices you have for what you should do there are so many different approaches to the fiddle and that's true with the other instruments as well. But that's one of the things I think for all Czechs who are playing music, if, if they don't already have maybe an assigned role, like I, or if they don't have some specific inspiration, I want to play fiddle like Bobby Hicks or, or like uh, Chubby Wise, uh, these iconic players. If they don't have that, if they just want to play bluegrass fiddle, how do they learn it? There's just a hundred different ways that they could. So it's like a, and that's, that's, Something that's a, a part of the cultural uh, free, the detachedness of Czech bluegrass. Like they have, the the slate is wide open. They're, they're not limited to what they can choose aesthetically in terms of approach necessarily. So it's almost too much possibility. Um, and then other things uh, came up. And I think one thing is that I found is, is that Czechs often are just kind of hesitant. I think I was often, I often found myself saying, saying that in response to a check filler who would say, Oh, I'm not very good. I was like, you are really good. I think you just need to be more confident. And I found myself sort of like this uh, in a role in, in an interview, perhaps being like a, uh, like a, a support team member, you know, like counseling them, like saying, just encouraging them. Uh, it's there, it was, it was interesting to do this chapter
1: you also discuss in this chapter more about the value of americanness for today's checks um in as much as you can sum that up what what would you say that is
0: well that it's it's complicated i the I, one of the points i talk about in there is specific kinds of americanness for instance the confederate flag um and other i iconic um elements of southernness and of course Many of the elisions that happen, uh, within the United States and abroad with, uh, Americanness is there are southern, Southern southernness, Americanness, rurality, uh, Appalachian-ness, all these possible sort of Venn diagram intersections of, of Americanness. Um, and so I, one of the people I interviewed was a fiddler of, uh, Roma ethnicity named David and it was, you know, it, it's interesting to hear him talk about what, uh what American means and how, for instance, he, he might feel about uh, the, the potentially uh nationalist or more xenophobic uh, aspects or the, the qualities that people might have who are participating in the music, who are uh, fans of southernness now i I will say that most of them, for the most part people are not aware of the potentially hateful or or uh, hurtful uh, qualities of something like the confederate flag uh, They just are ignorant of it, but I think sometimes at this point our our world is so global and connected, and people here are normal western smartphone toting people with hefty data plans they it's perhaps can be a willful ignorance more now than it used to be. So that was a really interesting discussion.
1: Absolutely. So the last chapter is called Singing Truth, Fidelity, and Play in Czech Bluegrass Gospel. And this is another really fascinating investigation because the religious background of many of the players that you interact with is quite different from that typically associated with musicians who play bluegrass or historically played bluegrass in the U S
0: right. And it's uh, people commonly say that the Czech Republic is the most, I guess the most uh, atheist country in Europe. And it, it that's as far as I've been able to tell, looking at the literature that that may be true. Uh, but with the people who, with whom I've worked, there are just a handful who would say that they are Christian believers And the case study that I took on for this, or the group that I really focused on for this chapter, is a group that's really known, or that was really known as performers of gospel material. And of course, I was interested to learn on talking with them that none of them identified as active Christian believers. They would identify with this on the level of sort of Western culture being in some ways generally Christian and saying there is a heritage in Europe of Christianity among other things, but they, they could identify it to that extent, but not personally in terms of their faith. So talking with them about how they came to play gospel music and what they value about it. And then particularly with the mandolinist of this group, Tomas, uh, talking with him about w- things that troubled him about playing the music. Cause he uh, related in re- during the ethnographic presence of the interviews, he was, uh, Expressing some misgivings about playing this gospel repertory and saying things that he didn't believe.
1: And so, how does he negotiate that process?
0: Well, one of the solutions that the group came up with was to, uh, to, to not do, to not play, not perform songs that had these more personal declarations of faith and to try and do more of the songs that perhaps told stories from the Bible. And uh, Tomáš was saying that that's not as, as uh, hard for him to say. Like, it's, it's part of this, I think he called it something like the Western heritage of this Judeo-Christian history and these texts, but it doesn't express a strong uh, sense of belief. And then the other thing is that already the group was transitioning from, from being what they, what they were at the time, uh, one the, just really known as a performer of these uh, gospel pieces, especially a cappella complex vocal harmony pieces. And they were playing more and more of banjoist Zbigniew Buresh's original numbers, which uh, that was, it was moving them away from, they were, I think they were really well known and really sought after for these gospel numbers. Audiences really liked them both in the Czech Republic and abroad, but they were trying to, I think, create a different profile for themselves. And I think they were, they were caught between the audience, the commercial appeal of, of the gospel numbers and what they wanted to do themselves.
1: Right. And just to clarify, when they're singing the gospel songs, are they singing them in English or are they singing them in translation or a mixture?
0: No, that's a really good point. And I didn't clarify this earlier there. This, this free open palette that they have in the Czechs have in, in, playing bluegrass, it includes link language and, and aesthetic approach and chronological date. Like you know, are they playing early bluegrass or contemporary bluegrass it's all open, uh, whether they dress up in cowboy hats or just play in normal street clothes. So Relief had chosen a more uh contemporary performance aesthetic and also to sing in English. And also they don't they don't they never wore cowboy hats or things like that. So they, that was their particular constellation of things that they chose to create their version of bluegrass.
1: And you've described them as being very popular for these these renditions of Bluegrass Gospel songs. So the audience, although probably for the most part atheists, also really appreciated them.
0: Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that the band members would say is they don't really think that a lot of the people in the audience understood the words. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons that people in an audience would not find that objectionable. You know, there's churches all over the landscape here. So even though you might not go to a service, right, you're, you're used to these uh, iconic elements of Christianity in the landscape,
1: and then it's not a chapter, but you've got something called a tag America <laughs> slash America with a K. What's that? Oh, it's
0: a it's a, a mess of of a title. I know. No, it's,
1: it's very intriguing.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's mysterious. It's it's a chance to revisit these things that I op- that I opened with, and to also just circle back to some of really important figures and wrap up and also for me to as as i was finishing up writing the book to sort of go back to the present of the writing because a lot of the materials in the book come from different time periods so i kind of say where where are they now um, like the that group relief that was in the previous chapter no longer play together so i just i kind of had a chance to say that and i um I, I focus on two people one is milan marek who goes to uh the united states and he just had this fantastic we had this amazing interview we were in the car driving and he was talking and he was pounding the steering wheel recalling how exciting it was to go to the united states
1: that's so lovely yeah it's
0: hilarious it still makes me smile to remember it and then all- <laughs> and just so powerful so tangible his, his excitement but then also interviewing marco chermak this venerable uh very important figure with the banjo from the 1960s talking about why he chose not to go to the united states even though he was invited in various times he was given a an award by the international bluegrass music association to come to the states and receive it for this sort of bridge builder or foundational important uh, distinguished award and he chose not to do and he told me that in an interview that he had seen uh pictures and videos of people from the czech republic traveling to the united states and he said all those highways and hotels you just play pay to this sort of bleak roadside mm. culture of access roads and and cheap motels and he said i didn't want to ruin this imagined america that i have uh, and he, we were sitting outside his cabin that has been used as a tramp cabin and, and used by him for decades now in a beautiful uh part of the woods southwest of prague in the Burdy hills and he says this is my america why would i want to go there and so that was another really powerful Uh, Experience for me, and it was it was fun to include that there at the end. It it leaves this. It really reinforces this idea of the in betweenness and the creation of this America with a K that is neither Czech and or American, but somehow a play with both of them.
1: That's just a wonderful ending. Now, before we move on, is there anything you want to say about the book that I didn't ask you about?
0: Oh, I doubt that I need to prattle on any more about it.
1: (laughs) So, tell us, what are you working on now?
0: Well, so this year, I am seeking to expand my research. So you can tell reading the book that my research really just focuses on a select archipelago of people and communities. Everyone seems to be interrelated. And that's true in the whole scene. It's a small country. It's a small scene. But I really do want to reach outside of the circles that I've become used to circulating within, and to also talk to more people on different levels of, of engagement. To talk to more professionals who work in different parts of the movie uh, of the music, like concert promoters and people who own music stores, and to uh, I'll talk to more just normal people who participate in the music in different ways, and to have more of a geographic diversity. Uh, also, I've developed this more critical uh, edge to my work. So far, I think it's been pretty celebratory. I think this book is critical in terms of investigating and questioning cultural elements and things like that. But uh, I think my engagement with the music uh, it is still going on. I still love it. I still love a lot of the people that I'm involved with here. But in general, I'm, I'm questioning things, particularly with p- political changes that are going on right now and the ways that I see that bluegrass can be a part of expression of things that I find distasteful. So this is, mm-hmm. this has been hard for me because one tries to be a neutral objective, right? In some ways, but this, I'm finding it harder to do that in some ways, but I'm also really scared to, to push out and and try and say, and I'm trying to figure out what is the appropriate way to, um, to do some cultural criticism that, that isn't neutral in some way, but that, that actually, or, or at least that would identify perhaps some of the ways that, Uh, people here in the Czech Republic might use bluegrass or bluegrass might inform their uh, anti-Islam feelings or uh, anti-immigration politics.
1: Well, that sounds like uh... (laughs) a
0: a minefield.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That does indeed sound like a minefield. And I, I think it will be incredibly interesting to read how you negotiate your way across that particular minefield for everyone who does field work but we have taken up a lot of your time so i'm going to let you go now but i want to thank you Lee big good for taking part in this New Books in Folklore podcast and telling us about Czech bluegrass, Notes from the Heart of Europe book, which was published last year. And also to remind our listeners that the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one of the many channels available on the New Books network. So thank you, Lee, and have a wonderful rest of day.
0: Thanks so much. You too.